Well, if you would take your Bible this morning and turn to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. You know, this past week in some ways was a letdown. Some people asked ourselves, what are we going to do now? So I was kind of reminded of what? Chris Shaw's pastor told him Chris Shaw had moved out of his apartment when he's in Greenland. Had a wife, I don't know how many children they had at that point. They had a couple children she was expecting. And the only place they could find was a pretty run down. He went into it and there was a what they called a honey pot. Frozen running over. Anyway, Make a long story short, he's beside himself. He calls his pastor crying. And I'm not minimal, not making fun of that he was crying. He said, what am I going to do? His pastor said, Chris, get off the phone and just take the next step. And that quickly, perhaps, became available. See, we just need to do the next thing. Put one foot in front of the other and continue on serving the Lord, no matter what happens in the world around us. Philippians chapter 1, and verses, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I title the message this morning, Advancing in Our Walk with the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. We thank you, Father, for your promises that you give us in your word. And I pray, Father, looking at the word of God today, that we would focus our mind and our hearts, attention upon thee, give attendance to thy word, that we may allow you to work in our hearts, bring our minds into captivity, every thought to the obedience of Christ. And though the world is in turmoil, our nation's in turmoil, and there's lots of unrest and uncertainty, yet we know we can find security and confidence in the name of the Lord. For the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous runneth into it and is safe. So help us to rest in that and help us just to continue to serve you, to grow in our walk with you. We do pray that there be any in our midst this morning who do not have that assurance of salvation. Pray that the Spirit of God would rest their hearts and bring conviction and help them to come to repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. This is Some of this is a little bit of an introduction to this book, as we're going to be studying and preaching through this book to the church at Philippi. But in this letter to the church at Philippi, this, uh, this inspired letter that Paul wrote, Roy Lawrence said this about it, quote, We see Christian life in terms of experience. As experience, the Christian life is not static or sterile. It is constantly advancing climbing, achieving, and reproducing, unquote. 
see, there's a distinction between doctrine and experience. Doctrine never changes. It always remains the same because God is immutable. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. So doctrine will never change. However, as to Christian experience, it's always changing. We call it growth. Growth. Or we might call it sanctification or going on. The Bible uses the word going on to perfection. Again, it's referring to growth. And we see illustrations of this um, everywhere in life. You know, our alphabet never changes. You know, as far as I know, it's the same 26 letters that I learned when I was in high when I was in kindergarten some forty hmm, some years ago, fifty some years ago, fifty some years ago. Yeah, because I went to kindergarten when I was five, and I'm fifty-eight. I used to a a few little bit anyway. Uh, you know, it's still it's the same six letters or building blocks for language. So alphabet never changes. However. Those arrangements of those letters do. You know, it's the same as it was in 1828 when Noah Webster penned his dictionary. But there, are, there is new words and language as expression of thought that's always changing. You know, in 1828 there was no word airplane, automobile, motorcycle, four wheeler, or you truck guys, diesel. There's no such words. There is now. We see this in music. In music, the basic notes and chords never change. But the arrangings of notes can and are changed to give variety to music. So though God does not change, and the way of salvation has not changed, yet the experience of salvation is, again, understand this, the experience of salvation is not a predetermined, predetermined set of boundaries and emotions. Now, everybody gets saved the same way. You repentance toward God and faith in Christ. But the way you may approach someone or may that way may be under, have it understood may be different for different people. Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, in verses 19 through 13, when he said this, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 13, he says this, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, so you see it's Jews, to the Romans under law, to the Gentiles are without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some, and this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker with you. And so, you know, though the salvation, the way of salvation has not changed, yes, the experience of salvation or how we come to it is different for different people. You know, Jesus dealt differently with different people. To the rich young ruler, he said, uh, keep commandments. He said, keep the commandments. And he said, which? And so he started going through them. Do you know he didn't, he didn't say anything about commandments to the Samaritan woman? Nothing about the commandments of God to the Samaritan woman. He said, you need to drink 
if you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. You need to drink of the well of water that I can give you, that you'll never thirst again. See, there was a different approach to the Samaritan woman than the rich young ruler. Depending upon their perception of things and their understanding of things. See, the rich young ruler, he said to keep the commandments, showing him he was a sinner and guilty of covetousness. The Samaritan woman already knew she was a sinner. But he said, you need to have the living water that will satisfy the void in your life. But is this not what we've done in our independent Baptist churches? We have this short 10-minute presentation that one-size-fits-all gospel. And then we expect everybody to understand. And many times they do not understand. See, the grace and power of discipleship, of growth in one's walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, is this, for me to live as Christ. Philippians 1.21. If somebody said this, if one is not truly born again, there may be some outside reformation, but there will not be inward heart change. C.I. Schofield said this, quote, Christian experience is not something going on around the believer, but something going on in him. Right Christian experience is the outworking of whatever one's circumstances may be of life, nature, and mind of Christ living in us, unquote. You see, it's a divine effect. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 12 through 13, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, have you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. So we see that Christian experience is something that, not something that's going around the believer, it's something that's working out from the heart. Because God works in the heart. It is a divine effect. And this epistle, this letter to the Philippians, challenges us, the challenge of it is, to make progress in our Christian life. It's about growth. To advance in our walk with the Lord. And we see this all through the book. For example, chapter 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it or continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. So God's going to continue to work in you to bring about His will more fully in your life day by day. Verses 9 and 10. This I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense till the day of Christ. Chapter 2. He challenges us in verses 2 and 3. Fulfill ye my joy, be ye like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. That takes growth. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each, other, each esteem other better than themselves. So there's a continue putting aside of self and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> in chapter 3, and really where the theme of this book is, in verse 14, but that I might, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellow of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain. So Paul was saying here, look, I haven't attained yet that which God desires for me to attain, but I'm, as he says in verse 14, I'm pressing toward the mark. I'm continuing to make progress. I'm advancing in my walk with the Lord. And so this book is about us advancing. 
not being static or standing still or receding or, or retreating, but going forward in our walk with the Lord. Going forward. And I want to notice several things as we consider advancing in our walk with the Lord. First of all, the source of this advance or this progression in grace is found here in verse 1. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now he, calls, he reminds them, he says, Paul and Timotheus, servants of Jesus Christ. And then he says, to the saints in Christ. So it's, he, he talks about being servants of Jesus Christ. It's not just to know about Christ, but to be servants of Christ. See, to be servants of Christ, the word servant means a slave, a man of servile condition, and the word picture here, it's used here metaphorically, of one who gives himself up wholly. In other words, he hasn't been arrested and put in chains and made to serve. No, it's a picture of one who gives himself up willingly, wholly, to serve another. And when Paul says that we are the servants of Jesus Christ, he said, I, we have given ourselves up wholly to another's will. We've given ourselves up wholly to God's will. The word is used in, over in Romans 6.20, where it says, for when we, you were the servants of sin, let me ask you something. When you serve sin, did you do it of your own free choice? I don't know about you, but I did. It was of my own free choice. It was of my own will. It was of my own volition. And that's what Paul's saying here in Philippians 1. But he said, now I'm the servant of Jesus Christ. Of my own volition. My own will. I've given myself up to this. Romans 6.22 But now being made free from sin, and you become servants, again, there's the same word, Given oneself up wholly to servants to God. You have your fruit unto holiness in the end, everlasting life. So the source and power to progress in the Christian life, to advance or to go forward in the Christian experience, is to be a willing servant of the Lord. We have to be a willing servant. It requires I give myself up. It requires that I lay aside my will, my ambitions for the will of God. And of course, this goes without saying, this means that I have to have a relationship with the Lord. With God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to have a relationship. It means that I have been, we have been born again, repented of sin, put our faith and trust in Him. It means we have received Him as Lord and Savior. It means I have surrendered my life to God. As Paul said here in chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ. That's my life. For me to live is Christ. He's the one I'm living for. I'm not living for self. I'm not living for the world. I'm not living for this nation. I'm living for Christ. And we must be in Christ. You know, everything in life, every success, depends upon the position from which we begin. You know, if you want a solid house... What is required? A solid foundation. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. 
You see, if you want to have, if you want to advance in your walk with the Lord, if you want to have a relationship with God, if you want to be in Christ, you have to start with the foundation. And that is Jesus Christ. Everything's dependent upon the foundation. Whether you whether it's a marriage, a home, whatever it may be, it needs to have a right foundation. This in Christ is the source of life. It is a source of one's righteousness. Second Corinthians five twenty one says we are made the righteousness of God in Him. Somebody said this is the launching launching platform for one's assault on life. You know, we ought not to allow life to assault us. We ought to assault life. We ought to go forward. with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to face the hardships and the trials of life. And again, our source of strength and power to overcome life's trials and hardships is not in our own power, but is the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 3, remember Peter, he was a lame man, Peter and John. And people came running and looking, and they were all amazed at what had happened. And Peter says this, You men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Why look you so earnestly upon us? As though by our own power or holiness we made this man to walk. What Peter, what Peter is saying is, look, it isn't us that made this. It isn't our power and our holiness, our, our goodness, that made this lame, lame man walk. It's the power of Christ. And to see the power or the source for you to advance and to go forward in a Christian life is not in you. It's in Him. It's in Him. Paul will tell us in Philippians chapter 3 to have no confidence in the flesh. 3 3. Of course, there are calls. To save our nation. But can we? What was the source of the greatness of our nation? Was it not the people's relationship with the Lord? Some say we need to save New Testament churches. The Christianity is not a form we must sustain, but a force. A power that sustains us and that power is Christ. It is in Christ, servants of Christ, being made righteous in Him, being made a saint, one made holy, and that's what how he describes them here as saints, one made holy that advances our growth and affects our culture. If it is up to us to sustain our church, it needs to be shut down. It is God that will sustain our churches. And if our nation is going to be sustained, it is God who will sustain it. Not us. And therein lies the great fear I have for our nation. If it is we that must sustain our church, then it's just become a formality. For it is the life of God in Christ Jesus in the lives of members that sustains the church. 
a nation, a family. You know, this pandemic, quote-unquote, has been very, very revealing in many churches. You know, true churches, in my opinion, don't stop meeting because the government says so. Now, they may, as some have, stop meeting for specific periods of time because members are sick. I know a church right now that's not a good church. It's not meeting. Because they have quite a few that are sick among them. So, you know, I don't know, you know, even before the pandemic, I remember Calvary shut down for a week or so because they had, of course, that was in January of last year. They didn't know what it was. So many were sick. But that was the church's decision. Government has no authority to tell a church of a living God when and how often they can meet. We are commanded by God to assemble together. But you know, some churches have just given up altogether. We have a higher authority. You see, it is God that will sustain us. It's it's up to the church. You know, if you can go to work, to Walmart, food line, you can go to church. And so we see here the, the source of this advancement is life in Christ. It is the life of Christ sustains us as a source of power, transformation to do life in is new life in Christ. Secondly, I want to notice the sphere of this advancement. In verse one, again it says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. And throws the phrase there, which are at Philippi. The word sphere is defined as the place or environment within which a person or thing exists, a field of activity or operation. So our sphere, their sphere was Philippi. Our sphere is here in North Carolina, central North Carolina, Wake Franklin Counties, and course we go into all the world through through our missions you know what we will be as citizens here will be determined by what we are as God's children you know our influence and strength of life is not drawn from our circumstances here in Wake or Franklin County or wherever you live in North Carolina but what we are as Christians, from our Christian character, if this location or circumstances here are your security, your focus is off. Yeah, we ought to be able to live for God anywhere. If God is the source of our strength, we ought to be able to live for God anywhere. He would take us. In any environment. Because the source of our life is God. Think about it. Is there a greater power than the power of God? You know, Philippi was a Roman seat of a local government of the great Roman Empire. But there was a greater power in Philippi than the Roman government. The life of Christ in the hearts of these Philippian believers. Their testimony not only reached 
into Philippi, but it reached into other parts of the Roman world. If you notice in chapter 4 and verse 16, he says, For even in Thessalonica you sent once again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. So, you know, their, their influence went even beyond Philippi. It wasn't bound or controlled by the circumstances and the government in which they lived. After all, Rome and Caesar were very hostile to churches in those days. But Rome and Caesar are gone. And Philippi's gone. But Christ and his churches are still here. We're still here. So no, how, no matter how inhospitable or antagonistic the environment uh, gets in this world, the gates of hell will not repel, prevail against the Lord's churches. There has been continuity throughout the centuries of churches. The secret, again, is to be in Christ. That's the secret. Whether it's Rollsville, Florida, Maine, California, what about it, or foreign soil somewhere. Whether the Lord would send he is a source of power of the transforming influence in our world. You know, we've been really, we've been kind of spoiled here in America. We have it comfortable. We have it easy. We complain about what little suffering we endure. And our greatest enemy probably in America is the enticement here to be of wealth and comfort. But that's our sphere. See, we are to serve God. We're to go forward. Wherever we find ourselves, wherever we live. What you notice the third thing? The possession and power of our position. Verses 2 says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words here I want to look at grace and peace. The word grace is defined as goodwill, loving kindness, or favor of the merciful God. Uh, by which God, exerting his in holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps, strengthens, increases them in Christian faith. And what you notice particularly, he keeps, he strengthens, he increases. Again, speaking of growth or advancing in our walk with the Lord. See, grace is the cause, peace is the effect. Grace is the enabling influence it is the power to effect change in our hearts, which results in a change of action. So grace is that enabling influence. It's the power to effect change in our hearts, which results in a change of action. Peace. In other words, being at rest and not uh, offended or uh, acting unrighteous in any situation, being at rest in the Lord. Sometimes we just say, well, grace is just the unmerited favor of God. Well, what exactly does that mean? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15.10, the Bible says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So the cause of what Paul was, was the grace of God. It was what is what caused him, or it was the power 
that enabled him to, to travel, to preach the gospel, to endure all the hardships he did, all that was endured because of the grace of God, the power of God working in his life. See, grace is the enabling of God to do what he commands. The grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which is stowed upon me, was not in vain, but I labored. That's the effect. Because of the grace of God, he labored. It wasn't just, it wasn't Paul. It was God's grace manifested in his life. Ephesians 1 6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So again, by the grace of God, or in the influence of God, we have come to salvation and we've been made accepted by God. Grace of God. Titus 2 11. For the grace of God, here's the cause, that bringeth salvation at the spirit to all men. And what does grace do? It teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. So we're living in a present world. Paul's, Paul's saying, we're living in a present world that's evil, it's ungodly, it's immoral, it's corrupt. The government is corrupt. You know, the Roman government was very corrupt. And we talk about the immorality of our politicians. Nero was a homosexual. He was the Caesar, time of Paul's. I'll be writing this. Paul said, despite all this stuff that's going on in the world, and I'm in jail writing this right now, the grace of God can enable us to live soberly, righteously, to do what's right, to think right, to not get alarmed. That's what it means to be sober, to not be alarmed, be out of control, to think right, to act right, to do right. The grace of God. See, see, the effect of the grace of God is salvation, sanctification, or growth, perfecting ourselves. So this is a possession that we have as a result of us being in Christ. It's our possession as a child of God. You find yourself sometimes maybe being challenged by people out there in the world, people they've even influenced about some of your positions. And you find yourself, hey, I'm not afraid anymore. You see, that's the grace of God working in your heart. And then notice also, he says, peace. The word peace means a conception distinctly peculiar to Christianity. It's peculiar to Christianity. The tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ, so fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot of whatsoever sort it is. See, the idea here is we have assurance of salvation. We have peace with God. We have this assurance of salvation. It's the security in God. That no matter what happens, God will not forsake us. We have his promise. No matter what God allows in my life, he's with me. 
And he knows where I am. He knows my situation. And I'm just going to trust him. And not fret, fume, get all bent out of shape. But he knoweth the way that I take. You know. That's peace. Now, the reality of that is many times we go through and we worry and we fret and, we, and then we wonder later wonder why we worried and fret. But this is a change of heart, again, produced by the grace of God working in a person's life. Now let me give you some Bible examples of this. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, in verse 12 he says, For which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. For I know, here's the security, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Now, understand something that Paul is writing, if you will, his last will and testament. He knows he's facing martyrdom. But he said, I know that he knoweth. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Because I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You notice chapter 4, verse 8. He says, I have, verse 6, I'm sorry, for I am now ready to be offered. Time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Do lie diligence come shortly unto me, for Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Depart on a Thessalonica, Cretans to Galatia, Titus unto Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee. Now, Notice this last phrase, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Now, Paul is facing death. My question is, why would he say, bring Mark with you, because he's profitable for me for the ministry? He knows he's about to be martyred, and yet he says, you know what, I still have ministry to do. He's not sitting around fretting about what's going to happen tomorrow. If he's going to die tomorrow, or if it's going to be next week or next month, he knows it's near. He knows he's going to be martyred soon. But he said, in the meantime, i got ministry to do. i got ministry to do. See, he was at peace with where he was. Because he knew that his life was in the hand of God. Notice verse 18, chapter 4. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me, not necessarily to this life, but unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He knew that he was in the hand of God. And whether he lived or died, he was at peace. And we could say the same thing of Peter. If you read Second Peter, 
you know, Paul, Peter there talks about that he knew that that his his death was near. He tells uh, he tells us in chapter one, verse uh, thirteen. Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And of course, Peter referring to he was going to be crucified. But in chapter three, verse fourteen, he says this. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, you may be found of him in peace. See, peace is trusting God in every situation. Peace is waiting on God in times of trial and disappointment to direct and provide. Like King Hezekiah and Judah, where they were in siege by Sennacherib and his large army. You know, Sennacherib had already defeated 40-some cities in his invasion. And it seemed inevitable that Sennacherib would destroy Jerusalem. But Hezekiah put his trust in God. He besought the Lord to provide and direct. Now, and of course we know that in one night, the Lord slew 185,000 seers. But here's the things we don't have to understand. This seize wasn't one day. We don't know exactly how long it was. But for days, maybe weeks, usually these sieges last for months, sometimes years in those days. After all, they had, a, they had water coming in through the city. They brought in stores of food so they could survive for a long time. Maybe up to years within the city walls. So this, we don't know how long a siege was, but it was more than a month. To say the least. But see, Hezekiah put his trust in the Lord. Your grace and peace are divine characteristics given by God for life in all changing conditions and circumstances. It is resting in Him. You know, the normal Christian life is not just a quiet, easy life. It is the conquest of life through the grace of God which produces peace in all situations. And grace is the power. It's the influence that produces the peace of heart that enables us to act rightly in times of trials and hardships. It is the key, you might say, that unlocks the power to us who are called the servants of Jesus Christ. But you know, the most important thing and the vital thing is we have to have the source of power. Are you in Christ? Are you a servant of the Lord? Have you given yourself up to the Lord? Have you, is your life being built upon the right foundation?